And we are back, back and better than ever, continuing our ASCD recap, bringing the best of Empower 2019, the conference in Chicago, to the earbuds of educators all over the world. And in this episode, we talk to a trifecta of fantasticness, Dr. Yvette Jackson, Dr. Allison Zamuda, and Dr. Benna Kalik. Uh, this dream team was definitely one of the more powerful teams here. Every single session that they had was a sold out session and they did several of them. Um, and you'll see why their sessions were so packed out in a second. But the crazy thing to me is that between these three women, they've written like at least 20 books. And I think I counted 27, so almost 30 books. And I think that their sessions were so popular because not only of their well-loved books, but also because of the empowering nature about abandoning deficit thinking, which we all know we get stuck in. Yvette, uh, Dr. Jackson knocks it out of the park when she explains how problematic deficit thinking is when we talk about students' potential. And something else that's been a conversation is the problem that deficit thinking has when we speak about our profession as a whole. Uh, our superintendent, Dr. Haddad, along with others in the state in, of Colorado have been talking about this a lot, as I know other states have, and we're, starting, we're seeing uh, emerging campaigns to this effect. Like our schools, our community in Colorado, and I love public schools in Nebraska. I'll put them in show notes so you can check them out. I know there's more. But one of the best parts of the conference for me was that for an entire weekend, I was surrounded by 8,000 other educators who all had such a deep respect for this profession and told stories of human capacity and triumph that it would be a shame not to share those messages until we're blue in the face. But instead, it seems that we exhaust ourselves by giving attention to very real, but also perhaps over-attended constraints. We all know when you start a conversation with potential and vision, it'll get you so much further. And we've felt that lift when surrounded by actual positivity, not like false or untrue or Pollyanna type positivity, but actual positivity. Yeah, yeah, Becky, I was on Twitter the other day and saw something that had been retweeted a gajillion times. And it was like a political cartoon where a man was at a podium in a nice tuxedo and he was holding a trophy, talking into this microphone at the podium and the caption read, and now this year, teacher of the year goes to Ms. Smith. And unfortunately, she can't be here to accept the award because she's waiting tables in her second job. And while I 1,000% understand what that cartoon is getting at, I understand why so many people retweeted it, um, it's like those kind of messages about our profession don't bring about change, right? And um, no one loves a pity party. And I think of one of my best friends is a fundraiser for a nonprofit in Kentucky. And he talks about the best way for him to fundraise is going to a potential donor and showing him how his organization is just crushing it already and saying, hey, look how many awesome things we already do. And with your help, we can continue doing even cooler things. And so I just think, how could we apply that? Like, don't be deficit thinking. Let's not lead with what we don't have, what resources we don't have. But let's start with how well and how much we really are already doing amazing things, which we are. And we know that everybody loves a winner. And I think uh, that could just be a really powerful way to remove deficit thinking, even from the narrative of public education. And there are a million more things to say about this topic. So the conversation is far from over. Today, I want to see this as a reframe of the marigold analogy and the companion planting that we learned about from Jennifer Gonzalez. So let's be marigolds in how we think about student potential and how we talk about our profession and about each other. And to help us do that, here is the dream team. I'm Allison Zamuda. Yvette Jackson and Ben Kalik. If we could impose upon you then to just give us kind of a high-level summary of what you're here presenting on this weekend, uh, either from yesterday or one of your sessions from today, uh, just to give us a, a quick overview. That'd be fantastic. 
one of the reasons why the three of us came together is we started having a, a lovely lunch conversation about a year ago, and we were talking about the power and the energy of students and the mm -hmm. idea that if you don't believe in students, if you don't believe in their capacity and their talents and their strengths, that we're not really teaching them well from a learning point of view. So, And we also thought that because our work is really around personalizing learning, there's nothing stronger than realizing that you have to have a belief in the kids to personalize. Mm -hmm. And you also have to understand something about mm -hmm. their dispositions for learning. So we said, okay, this is the most perfect synergy. We want to talk about equity. Yeah. And we invited Yvette because she is such a thoroughly wonderful person on that topic. And then we also thought personalized learning and habits of mind. And to help people see that these aren't separate ideas, but that they really fit together as a whole. Right. And we're looking at it to change people's expectations for kids. You know, we are so used to being in this deficit model zone. And so what we're looking at is, no, we don't have to be in deficit. That, in fact, if you start with student strengths, that what you're going to do is even change expectations for those students. And we know we can change those strengths or build the strengths through personalized learning. So, And we're also in this odd space right now in the country in that the uh, closing the achievement gap, we believe, is not the right frame of reference anymore. I don't right. think any of us really believed it was right. ever the right frame of reference. But the intention of what it is that we're trying to grow our learners in, uh, thinking about those broader long-term outcomes like complex problem solving, critical thinking, uh, creativity. It's very connected to habits of mind, but that's not something that many standardized assessments are using as their benchmarks, mm -hmm. which means that the teaching is not lining up with what kids really need. And there is gonna be this significant pushback from not just the anxiety about are we getting our students and our, our children prepared for the world right now, but also really thinking about the um, just the, the, the dissatisfaction about how we're engaging with students in the classroom and the lack of energy and joy, their increase in passivity. Right. Right, so we're really, as I said, trying to change, flip the script. So as Allison was saying, we don't even want to use the word the achievement gap, the words the achievement gap, because that really pushes this idea of a lack, and it pushes the idea of focusing on race. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to say the color we want to focus on is gray, gray matter, the brain. And if we focus on the brain and how all children learn, then we will be more cognizant of what excites mm -hmm. them into learning. And that's what we're doing. We're making this push that if you really want to change the expectations, change what you're offering. I, I would say in addition that there's so much misinformation about personalized learning that it tends to be a couple of things that I think don't really help this idea. So one thing that we see happening is that people say, well, personalized learning is only for those kids who already can do the kind right. of work that we're talking about. Right. So we say project-based learning is a part of personalized learning, but unfortunately only some kids are ready for that. So we try to flip that script. And then in addition, some people say personalized learning is really what we heard referred to, and I think it's an interesting one, it's personalized uh, consumption. Mm -hmm. And personalized consumption means we put the earbuds on, we get the kids that, yeah. into the pace learning, we give them the, what they're supposed to do, and then it's personalized. 
And we see those definitions really overwhelming urban populations right. in a way that in many places that are more privileged, they're more open to some of this thinking. And so it's really important for us to pay attention to the idea that all kids can learn in this way. Right. And I think that was why we wanted to really bring in the equity consciousness, which is what Yvette talks about. Right. And we believe uh, fundamentally that personalized learning is grounded in the human beings. This is an act of humanity. This is an right. act of joy and energy and connection. And oftentimes that is incredibly lost in how many people are approaching personalized learning as a plug and play type experience where teachers are relegated to being classroom managers as opposed to um, being able to coach students and make sense from their experiences and grow with them. So the idea of what kind of learning experience does, do we want to design with kids as opposed to on behalf of kids. Right, exactly. So we're looking at giving them more voice. And we believe in order to give them more voice, they have to be in a situation, in an environment, where they want to have more voice, you know, where they feel it, this is the place for them to really be reflective, find out what they're really good at, to push that, to build it, and then to use that to thrive and flourish. You know, so we're going beyond this idea of standardized tests and saying, how do we help them in such a way that they want to lead, you know, especially now at this time where we have what's happening to kids in schools, you know, in terms of drama. And so we have the kids actually looking at what is it that they can offer of themselves to yeah. the world? How can they make contributions? But they have to be excited into that. And that's what we're believing that through this personalized learning, through changing a focus to their strengths as opposed to weaknesses, they will become the leaders. And that's where we're going with this. And, and we also recognize how important it is in terms of a change in the role of a teacher. Right. Because it's one thing to have kids have voice. It's another thing for kid, teachers to listen. Yeah. And so what we have to say basically is that it flips in this sense. And it's interesting because Deborah Meyer said this many, many years ago. Teaching is mostly listening and learning is mostly talking. Mm -hmm. And so if we flip it and say, you know, what we want is we want to hear it from the students. But it doesn't mean that they're directing it. It means that they're co-creating with us and that they are a significant part of yeah. what we do. So the work that we do, all of us, is we include kids in a lot of what we do. We have Absolutely. them in committee meetings. We invite them to PD. We have them on, you can that's talk right. about what you're doing yeah. in Newark right in now. In Newark, that's what we're really looking at. That's not the only place, but where when we are focusing on learning about learning, how the brain works, cognitive development, neuroscience, bring teachers and students in together so they can learn about learning together. It changes the dialogue totally because the teachers are just learning too at this point, which means it's also great for assessment because now the teachers are seeing students function in a way that they're using academic language, that they are participating, that they're leading. And so now the teachers are saying, wait a second, they can do more than I even thought they could do. I have to listen better because I can learn from them too. And that's where we are moving that agenda. Uh, I think you just answered every single one of them. <laughs> 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 exactly. So we, but the way you guys play off of each other, and it's not, it's not a coincidence, it's because your work interweaves so well yeah, together. Yeah, it does. Uh, and that was one of the things we wanted to ask about is how that work is happening in Newark with, mm -hmm. um, can you tell us a specific story about how students are coming to the table, especially as a part of PD? Because I think yeah. that can be really intriguing for a lot of teachers. Yeah, so right now, the way that we have done it is 
I will go into the school with a partner. The partner is working with teachers. I'm working with the students. The second day, we get the students and the teachers together. So what am I doing with the students? I'm teaching them skills. I'm teaching them how to go through a communication and to really pose questions in a way that allows teachers to really hear what they're thinking. Um, they're learning actually pedagogy. They're learning terminology. They're learning ter uh, neuroscience. So when they meet with the teachers on the second day, they are learning about priming, processing, retaining for understanding. In other words, how do you create a lesson that's going to draw students in as well as bring together the teachers in excitement as well. So when they're there the second day, they spend the entire day together learning more about learning, how to create lessons, and then at the end, they are going and working in classrooms. The students are teaching lessons in classrooms. They even advertise throughout the school, you know, if you're working on such and such a skill, we can come into your class and help you. And we have the video footage of them. And it, it's really cute because we were showing one of the videos where at the end, one of the middle school kids was asked, well, how did you like the experience about being a teacher? And she said, I really enjoy it. I was really a little nervous, but I didn't want to show it because I have to be professional. So the <laughs> idea is what the other side of it is, the appreciation for the teachers. They're becoming dialectical, see, seeing from another side. In other words, they see how much work really does go into putting a lesson together. There's a respect that goes into that kind of understanding. But then on the other side, the teacher is saying, I didn't realize what a contribution they can do. Totally. So instead of talking about teaching and learning, we're talking about learning and teaching. Mm -hmm. The more we know about learning, then we adjust our teaching to reflect that kind of learning as opposed to the other way where we're going to pick a script and then we have to see if the kids will catch it. It's very different. Yeah. So that's what we're uh, doing in Newark in terms of the classes. And you see, yeah, you see your habits of mind or the four C's of engagement. You like it all is in something like that. Absolutely. So that's super cool to see that that overlap. Could we talk a little more about the problem of deficit thinking mm -hmm. um, and how you've, I mean, what, what do you guys see as the biggest problem with deficit thinking? Well, the biggest thinking? problem is really the government. That's number one because what they're trying to do is look for a uniformity in terms of assessment. How do we assess all the kids the same way? Because it's faster, it's cheaper, it's quicker. So in order to do that, they start creating these, these types of assessment where a bell curve starts being considered the way you look at kids. Either you're going to function high or you're going to function low. And the belief is if students are not doing well in the test, then this is reflective of their lack of capacity. And that's the way they set up that. And so for me, the work is how do you get people to understand more about the brain in learning to see that we were all born with the predisposition for high levels of thinking. Babies are born evaluating, synthesizing, yeah. you know, showing the innovation in amazing kind of ways. And so if we realize that all children have that capacity, you've got to change not only the way the assessment is done, but change what you're saying the belief about them is. And that's why that even that term again about the achievement gap is saying that, wait a minute, all, there are many kids who are going to come in not doing well. And we expect that. No, I no. Think, yeah, we expect I, something different. And I think a, a second aspect of a deficit-based pedagogy is that um, people, teachers, uh, curriculum designers, believe that there is a race to be run. 
the intention that um, this is the course, these are the units, these are the pacing guide. Here we go. We're all moving. <laughs> Do you know I mean, get on the train mm-hmm. on the first day of school. Or you're left behind. That's, that's right. right. And so the intention of the idea of being left behind, you can start to see that some um, subject areas, some courses are designed as building blocks or sequences. So if you don't get the first chunk, you're less likely to get the second chunk. And so the notion of it spiraling out of control, the intention of having a teacher teaching a sixth grade classroom where not everybody is ready for sixth grade, it does create a a significant amount of anxiety and worry in the teacher's mindset of trying to figure out how can I do what I'm supposed to do and get everybody else caught up. So I think that's another aspect of a (coughs) deficit-based pedagogy in terms of thinking about what is my job? Is my job to teach kids where they are or is my job to teach the curriculum? And it is an odd um, way of framing it because I think it's more of a, it's a false choice of really trying to figure out how do we grow students' conceptual understanding, those broader, longer-term goals, but also provide them the, the, the skills and the content, uh, whether it's the thinking skills or the procedural skills to make sense of that deep investigation and creation and synthesis that we're about as well. So we think that also to pay attention to the idea, and we talk a lot about this, language matters. So if you're really talking no child left behind, you already have a set of assumptions in your mind. Some kids are going to be left behind. I think in addition to that, what we learned in one of our presentations today is going to be to look at what we learned from Finland. There are some things that were quite exceptional. There are some things that we are already doing. But one thing that really jumped out at me particularly, I think all of us thought about this, was they don't talk about accountability. So we asked them, we said, well, if you don't talk about accountability, how do you think about it? And they said, we call it responsibility. And so then I started thinking about that, and I thought that that's a piece of our language that we have to consider. Because when I went back and I talked with some assistant superintendents, I had a seminar the next day, and I talked with them, and I said, so what do you think about this? They don't talk about accountability. They talk about responsibility. How would Mm -hmm. you interpret that? And one person said, You know, as I think about it, I think accountability means who can we blame for it not happening. Mm -hmm. When I think of responsibility, I think I own it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that we want to begin to shift, which is who really owns this. I always suggest that I think that the legislators, there's an inverse relationship, and that is the further you are from the daily life of kids, Mm -hmm. the more certain you are to what to expect from them. And the further you are, Less certain you are what to expect from them. You know, talking about, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I just think it's such an important question to ask yourself is, why is it that we as educators are really held captive to people who don't really know about child development? That was my point about the government. (laughs) That's exactly my point. And that's, I believe, what gets in the way more than anything. Absolutely. There isn't isn't a national appreciation for the fact that we are losing human capital on a daily basis because of what we're doing. And you see, that is where the issue becomes value. Do you really value the minds of all kids? Because if you really value them, meaning that they can make a contribution, you will set up experiences for them 
in a very different way. You will cultivate their brains mm -hmm. so that they can make these kind of contributions. But the other thing I was going to say about expectations, very often students also don't know what to expect, mm -hmm. right? So in other words, even when teachers write the objectives on the board and yeah. this is what they're going to learn, they're really not sure what the teachers are thinking about how to get there and why aren't they sure? Because there's not real discourse and dialogue mm -hmm. that goes on. So part of student voice is not just giving them the voice, but putting them in conversation, deep conversations with teachers about learning and about themselves as the learners and about seeing the teachers. You know, my teacher was a man named uh, Reuven Feuerstein who happened to have been one of Piaget's students, but he had said if you really want to help kids, you have to let kids get into the minds of the teachers. You know, usually we, have to, we say get the teachers in the minds of the kids. Other way He's around. saying the other way around because if the kids know how you're thinking, they can say, Oh, wait a second. I can think this way. I can also, yeah. now I know what you're expecting of me, and not only can I give you that, I can give you more than you even expected. And that is a different kind of conversation that we're trying to push forward. That's why we have co-creation as such mm. a big part of the thrust right. in personalized learning. And is that the equity moonshot then? Is that how you're thinking different, how you're, how you're framing differently the achievement gap, the right. equity moonshot as opposed to... We're, we're looking at equity not in terms of policy. See, that's the other thing. People think equity, you're thinking about removing predictability. You're talking about looking at inequalities. And we're saying, no, you have to start by saying discovering strengths. Yeah. Equity is about making sure that all of the experiences, the support, the environment is one that starts with belief and then sets up everything around that belief and then pulls the potential of the children forward. And then when you're trying to move with that, you'll start removing predictability because yeah. now you're saying, wow, these kids are so capable. And the other wild card is the equity moonshot is grounded in preparing kids for the world right now yeah. as opposed to the world 50 years ago. Right. So to, to us, closing yeah. the achievement gap is not the right way of framing this at all it's because not the goal. right it's not the goal to improve student test scores on something that actually is no longer functional mm -hmm. so the intention really of starting to step back and say what are we trying to do in the first place how can we make sure that every child's capital is something that can valued. not only be valued but yeah. also help transform themselves in the world right exactly and if you think about where uh, moonshot comes from kennedy and the capacity to get to the moon, and the whole idea that if Kennedy had said, we're going to get to the moon, I hope we're capable of doing it, I think we, we would have had a very yeah. different result <laughs> exactly. than the belief yeah. that we're going to get to the moon and we have the capacity to do that. We have to put our minds to it. We have to problem solve. And we we have to take there. on the challenge. And that's what we're asking people to do. I just want to say one more yeah, thing about please. the achievement gap. And that is there is a gap, and the gap is between a child's potential, their real innate ability, and what they're achieving. And that's why the responsibility is to close that. And that's an individual issue. It's not a racial issue. Yeah, you when you guys walked in, there was like theme music and time <laughs> slowed down just to have like these, these rock stars. Where can listeners who aren't here go to keep this conversation going? Where are you, do you guys have, um, yeah, where would we send listeners to keep learning from you all? Well, one of the areas that we're, we're continuing to work on is the, the synergy amongst the three of us. So first, um, 
Yvette's book, Pedagogy of Confidence, is a fabulous place to start framing the idea of the beliefs and the high operational practices. Um, Benna and I actually interviewed Yvette, and we started really launching into the work that we're doing in terms of our uh, dream team in relation to that. So cool. we're hoping that we'll continue to draft more ideas that are reflective of all three of us. Um, but in the meantime, you can consult students at the center uh, that right. Ben and I wrote and, um, and the Habits of Mind. And, and also the website, uh, learningpersonalized.com, where you can find the interview with vet because yep. that'll deepen some of your learning with it. Absolutely. Awesome. We look forward to seeing your book and the matching tattoo from the Dream Team. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Well, and thank you so much for listening. We have more from AACD all week, so make sure you're subscribed to Brainwaves so you don't miss an episode. Have a great generic time of day.